Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we be clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose, de- in whose hand the cup has been found. May we be blessed by the reading of God's word this morning. As you know, uh, the streets are bad. We're grateful that you stayed home and grateful that you're tuning on online. Tomorrow is cold weather films. I am grateful to be here to preach, as Jared said earlier. Um, thank God for technology, that we don't have to cancel uh, church, that we can still come. Uh, though we're not in the same building, we can gather in the same spirit. Uh, to receive what the Lord would have from us here in Genesis chapter 44. I have no announcements, so I'd like to just jump in the passage of this morning. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into Genesis 44. Let me pray. God, thank you for your goodness to us, your kindness to us. Thank you for modern technology that, that allows us to continue to gather in uh, with one spirit, the Holy Spirit, who unites all things to you, God the Father, and Christ the Son. So we're grateful to be here. Though we may not be in the same building, we are of one heart and one mind, and we pray you with one spirit. Well, I pray that you would continue to use uh, this church, this expression of your bride to be blessed to you, that we would be a beacon, we would be a light into this lost world. I pray that you would uh, receive us this morning, and that you would walk before us. In the mighty name of Christ Jesus, amen. I think we're having some feedback issues, so uh, just bear with us for a moment. Uh, I'll continue to teach uh, as they uh, work on the technology. 
uh, grateful for technology, but it comes with its, with its cost. Uh, if you have your Bible, like Jared said, let's turn to Genesis 44. I'm going to catch us up to speed where we're at as we head into this message this morning. We, we've been in the life of Joseph. Remember, Joseph, at a young age, was sold by his brothers into slavery. Joseph was the favorite son of his father, Jacob. Jacob uh, had a favorite wife, Rachel. Rachel had two sons, Joseph being one and Benjamin being the other. And Jacob uh, showered gifts upon Joseph, and he was clear that who the favorite son was. After the uh, selling of Joseph into slavery, Benjamin became that the heir apparent to his favoritism. And so for 23 years, we, we see this story play out. The favoritism of Jacob to Joseph and to Benjamin, so much so that the brothers hated him. Re- remember, one of the reasons the brothers hated him so much was that Joseph, as a young man, as a teenager, said that he had this dream. He had two different dreams. The first dream was that all the brothers, the 11 brothers, would bow down before him, that he would rise to a place of prominence over them. And then he had another dream, and that his whole family would bow down to him. We've seen over the last few weeks, we'll see again this week and next week, these dreams starting to be fulfilled. Last week we saw that all the brothers bowed down before him, except for one uh, with one finally coming, Benjamin, the youngest brother, bowing down before him. And so where we were, where we left off last week, there was this great famine in the land. The famine uh, is about two years old at this point. They had gone down in the first two years to Egypt to gather grain, to gather food from the Egyptians. Remember, there was a dream that there would be seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. We're in the seven years of famine. And so the brothers make their journey the first time, grab the food, and on their way back, uh, they're stopped because they were suspected of being spies and thieves. And they keep going. That's where we'll be here today. They're going to be stopped a second time. The first time, they, uh, the, 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 the silver that they had paid for was put back in their sacks. They make it all the way home, and then when they make it home, There's this angst within them because they now discover they really do look like spies and thieves. And remember what Joseph had told the brothers. Do not return here without the youngest brother. But you remember the conversation that the brothers had with their father, Jacob. Jacob not wanting the youngest son to depart with them to go back the second time to gather the grain to eat. But they finally convinced Jacob. Last week we saw that all the brothers, the 11 brothers, journeyed back to Egypt for this second trek to gather the grain so that they would not die. Upon arrival, there's this conversation with with Joseph and the brothers. The brothers bow down before him. Simeon, who had been put in prison for two years, rejoins them. And in rejoining them, there's this feast, there's this party. And that's kind of where we left it. There was this reuniting of the brothers at the the table as they eat. And in verse uh, 34 of chapter 43, it says this. Portions were taken from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. 
So there was this party, there was this festival that they had had amongst the brothers. And now we'll catch up in the next morning, chapter 44. But in doing so, I want you to have this in mind as I teach through this passage. How often we think that God will use our successes to bring about his plan. And in, in our lives, we want to be successful. We want to do all these things so that God will use us. But oftentimes, as we see throughout scriptures, it's not our successes that God tends to use. It's our failures. It's our brokenness. I believe this is true because when we are successful in things, we very rarely give credit to God. Because at the end of the day, when we are successful, we can somewhat point to ourselves and say, I did that. We can get prideful and arrogant. And I believe we'll see in this text, if you'll see in your life, that God is much more concerned about your failures than he is about your success. And God will often use your failures to bring about his plan. We see that throughout the Bible. I believe this is true because when we fail and God accomplishes his purposes, there is no way we can take credit for that. We must point to God and God alone. I know that to be true in my life when I look back on my journey with the Lord. I've had many successes, but I can see now that God has used my failures for his kingdom way more than he has used my successes. I look at my life for the last 12 years, one of those being going to treatment, going to rehab. I thought God would never use that to bring about his purposes in my life, but yet God in his goodness, his sovereignty, and his kindness has used that three months in my life, probably more than any other event in my life, to bring about his purposes. He has used that to allow me to have an impact I never thought I would ever have when I went into treatment. But I can say 12 years, almost 13 years, Later, I can see God use that moral failure in my life to bring about his perfect plan. And so I want you to have that in mind this morning. I, I, my fear is when we come to these texts, we often want to identify with the heroes of the story. Yes, Joseph is the hero of this story. But just in a side note, in a sidebar in your Bible, you can be assured right in there that the hero of the story most of the times does not point to you and me, but he points to Jesus. Every hero of the story is going to point back to Christ, except when there's failure. So you and I are more than likely the brothers in this story than the hero of the story. And so let's get into the text this morning, I'll kind of read some and teach some along the way. It's broken up pretty simply into two major categories. Joseph testing the brothers and the brothers' acknowledgement of their failure. And then the last part of the text is Judah's intercessory for the brothers. So let's look into the text this morning, chapter 44, verse 1. 
And he, that's Joseph, commanded the steward. Remember, the steward was the one that had brought into uh, the brought the brothers into the house of Joseph last week, and that is his right hand man. And so Joseph commanded the steward, the right hand man of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, give them what they came here for, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with the money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. So here it is again. Joseph is testing the brothers. Joseph is putting into practice to see what would really be revealed in the heart. Remember, this place that we're in is Joseph testing the brothers to see if there's been true repentance and true reconciliation, not with him, but with their God who they sinned against. And so Joseph yet again puts his brothers to the test. He returns all the money that they came with. Remember, they had already come back with the money they had stolen the first time, and they had presented it back to Joseph. And now they had brought more money to buy more food, and Joseph takes all the money and puts it back into their sacks with all the food. So again, they get free food, and their money back. But then Joseph, in his scheming ways to test the heart of the brothers, to see what was really true about the brothers, takes his personal cup, a silver cup. Again, highlight that in your Bibles, the silver cup. That was a very, very expensive cup. It was his personal cup. It it was the thing that would distinguish Joseph when he walked into a room or he was at a banquet table. It was his personal silver cup that he would drink out of. And he said to the steward, put this expensive goblet, this expensive cup into the mouth or the the sack of the youngest brother, Benjamin. We'll see why here in a moment. He obeys Joseph and does that. Verse 3, it says, as soon as the morning was light, the men, the, the, the 11 brothers, were sent away with their donkeys. And they had gone a short distance from the city. I wonder in that journey, that short journey from when they woke up and sobered up from the night before, what that conversation must have been like. Remember all the anxiety that they had coming into the city a few days before to grab extra grain. And now they had been placed in a place of prominence at the table of Joseph, second in command of all the land. That was not what they thought they were getting into when they set out for their journey. And they had this conversation, I'm sure, on that journey about the excitement, about their gratitude, about maybe even how God had been kind to them. And then we see this. In the text. Just when they thought they had gotten away again, just as when they had thought they were on to high land or clear land, it says this, and they had gone only a short distance from the city. Now, Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is not from this that my Lord drinks? And by this, that he practices divination, you have done evil in doing this. So here they are on their journey here. Joseph sends the steward after them. 
the steward in verse 6 overtakes them or overcomes them. It says, and when he, the steward, overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Could, could you imagine? I don't know if you've ever been in a car and you have flown past a police officer and you see that police officer pull in behind you. Does your stomach not sink? Does your stomach not churn with the fear of, oh, no. Well, here those 11 brothers are. They're on their donkeys traveling back home. And all of a sudden they look back and here is Egypt following them again. And I wonder what was going on in their hearts and minds then. It says then that the steward overtook them or overcame them or approached them. And he jumps off of his donkey or his camel and says to the 11 brothers, what have you done? Why does the Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such things. Behold, the, the money that we have found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from the Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with with it shall die, and we also shall be my Lord's servants. And he said, let it be as you say. This is the, the steward now speaking up. Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. So he jumps off the donkey or the camel and goes to the brothers. The brothers begin to make this defense. How, how interesting it is when they is no guilt, we become very moral people. Is it not true? Like here it is, these 11, these 10 brothers are the same brothers that sold their younger brother into slavery. Remember what he, they said about themselves. Hey, we're innocent people. We're honest men. They still have not taken responsibility or made repentance for the guilt that they had done 23 years prior, but now that there's no evidence that they, they have done nothing wrong, they make this moral defense. Hey, we've done all these things. We, we haven't done this and we haven't done that. And look at what we did do. We were accused of stealing before. What we were accused of stealing before, we brought back and presented to you before and we laid it out before you. How could we do this again? I wonder in your life and in my life how often we're like the brothers. There's this hidden secret, there's this hidden sin that we've committed years ago. We've never owned up to it, we've never confessed it, we've never repented from it. And yet there's these other things in our life that we'll continue to point to and say to, to ourselves more than other people, but I'm this person, not this person. You see, we get into the game of justification. We want to justify ourselves, and as I'll get to it at the end of the text, there is only one that can justify us, it's not ourselves. But how often do we practice justification of our own actions? That we can point to things that we are doing and we aren't doing. Hey, I'm reading my Bible, I'm praying, I'm going to church, I'm tithing, and yet all the while we're over here with this hidden secret sin. As we'll see again, God will not let that secret sin go unnoticed or without discipline. And so they make this plea, thinking that they are innocent to the steward. 
And they say to the steward, hey, if there's any guilt among us, we'll, we will die and become your servants. The one that stole it will die and the rest be your servants. What a hasty pro- proposal to a steward. But they think they're guiltless. So, of course, they'd make that proposal. They think they've done nothing wrong. So they think they're innocent. So, therefore, they would make the most hasty of proposals. And in doing so, they quickly jump off their donkeys, it says, and they lower their sacks. Verse 11, then, then, then each man, all 11, quickly lowered their sacks to the ground. And each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest, ending with the youngest. Could could you imagine those moments? First, the brothers begin to open their sacks. And one by one, the relief that came over them. It takes nine, it takes ten brothers to get finally to the last one. But each one, each as they open their sacks, each as they go through their stuff, the relief that they had must have felt. But then he gets to young Benjamin. The one I'm sure that the brothers thought would definitely be out of all of them. Innocent. The other ten brothers had already done wicked things. They had already shown that they could do wicked things. Remember, they had sold their brother into slavery. They had made up a story that they had killed him. Then uh, Reuben and Judah do, do wicked things. Judah sleeps with his daughter-in-law. I mean, these are some wicked dudes. And so you could imagine the relief that must have overtaken them. But then the story gets to the last one, Benjamin. He reaches into Benjamin's sack. And this is not in the text, but this is just how my imagination takes it. He begins to scurry through the sack, fills the cup, begins to raise the cup out of the sack. The sun hits the cup, and I wonder what those brothers felt in that moment. Oh, no. Remember, they had remembered two years prior what it was like when they opened their sacks and found all the money. Remember the anguish that fell over them in that moment. And now here they had just made this proposal to the steward. If any of them were to be found with the cup, that man should surely die. But remember what they had promised their father just days before. They had promised that nothing would happen to young Benjamin. The Judah had promised his very life for Benjamin. I promised that I'll bring him back safe and sound. And now they had made this moment to the steward. The one that is found with the sack must die. And the rest will be your servants. So here it is. They're on their journey back home. This goblet, this cup is discovered in the young man's sack. Not only would one die, but the other ten would not return home. Think of what they must have been thinking about their father. Remember, they had said, we'll see it again in the text where Judah replays the story. Jacob had said, if this boy doesn't return home, I will surely die. And all that must have been going on in the heart of those men in that moment. 
And it says this in verse 13, Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. I wonder how long that small journey must have felt. You ever done something wrong? And maybe your parents said this to you, wait till your dad gets home. You remember it could have been at 4 o'clock and your dad got off work and was home by 5 o'clock, but it seemed like an eternity between 4 and 5 o'clock. Could you imagine how long that small journey must have felt to them? I wonder if it was quiet on that journey or if there were rumblings and talks about what are we going to do? How are we going to get out of this one? Remember, they had gotten away with a lot of things throughout their life. So we're not sure if it was a quiet ride or a ride full of angst externally with a plan to get out of it. But they arrive back at the house in verse 14. They see Joseph again. Remember the last time they had seen Joseph was the night before. They were all partying. And Joseph had somewhat embraced them. And now it says this in verse 14, And when they came to the city, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. And they fell before him to the ground. Again, the fulfillment of the dream that he had had years ago was fulfilled again in verse 14. And then Joseph speaks up. Joseph said to them, to all the brothers, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah, remember he at this time is now considered the eldest brother. It's important to know in your Bibles that Judah would be where Christ comes from. Judah is the line that Jesus Christ comes from not any of the other brothers not even Joseph himself but Christ our Messiah would come from this man and I think it's in this moment that we see the heart of Judas so transformed in verse 16 is the pivotal part of the passage it's the pivotal part of the story of this, their brothers of Joseph's brothers and it says to them what shall we say to my Lord what shall we speak or how can we clear ourselves? You see, in that moment, Judah came to the place of the end of himself. He says, I, I've got no defense. I've got no way to justify myself. I, I've got no way to clear my conscience. I've got nowhere to clear this accusation. And then he dives deeper into the story. He says, God has found out the guilt of your servants, behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup is found in that moment. Judah finally confesses his sin, not the sin of what's in the bag, but he goes all the way back 23 years ago. And who does he say? He does not say that Joseph has found the guilt of what he has done. What does it say? It says, God has found out the guilt of your servants. 
It took 23 years for Judah finally realized that God had always seen what he had done and found his guilt. But look where it started. It did not start with him being found out. It started with Judah's recognition that he could no longer justify himself. And that is true for us this morning, church. Whatever sin that you've committed, that you've hidden, you must come to a place that says in your heart and out loud to God, what shall I say to you, God? What shall I speak? How can I clear myself? How can I justify myself? How can I forgive myself? You see, I believe the great myth of the church is this, and you've probably heard it a thousand times. You must forgive yourself. That is the biggest lie that we could ever find. If we for, for forgive ourselves, there would be no need for a Savior. You would be your Savior. I think that's the great myth. You and I think we can actually forgive ourselves. But we cannot. If, if they could have forgiven themselves, they would have forgi forgiven themselves. And if we forgive ourselves, then there's no consequences that we have to bear because now we're forgiven. But Judah realizes, I've been trying to forgive myself for 23 years. And so often, my sin that I did to my brother 23 years ago keeps poking its head out. And I cannot run from my sin any longer. And he finally comes to this place. I am guilty. You see, church, we must all come to that place this morning. All of us can make that same cry. You and I are guilty. And your sin will always find you out. And he says to Joseph, we are now your servants. Do as you please with us, basically. In verse 17, Joseph speaks up. And Joseph said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, you shall go in peace to your father. Joseph offers what we would call forgiveness. Along with restitution. There must be a payment for their sin. And here's the longest speech in all of Genesis. Most scholars say this, it's the most kind-hearted, compassion-filled, and honest speech in all of literature, not just the Bible. Because we finally see the heart of Judah. We see what God had been doing in his heart for 23 years, preparing him for this moment. And then Judah went up to Joseph and said to him, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in the Lord's ear. And let your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you had a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children. And his father 
loves him. And then you said to your servants, bring him, the young man, back down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father for he should leave his father. His father would die. And then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. He's retelling the story of what happened on their first journey. And we went back to your servant, my father. We told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless the youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me. And I said, surely he has been torn to pieces and I have never seen him since. If you take this one from me also and harm happens to him, will, you will bring down my gray hairs into the evil of Sheol, or hell. Now therefore, as soon as I, I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as the boy is bound up in the, in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray heads of your servant, our father, with the sorrow to Sheol. So here it is. Judah's retelling the story and saying what will happen to their father. He's pleading on behalf of this man, Joseph's heart, hoping that Joseph would have a place of compassion for him. But I wonder what was happening in the heart of Joseph as Joseph sat there and listened to the story. For 23 years, Joseph had no idea what happened when those Ten brothers arrived back at home. He had had for 23 years to make up a story of what it must have been like for his father to hear the bad news. And now all of a sudden he hears for himself what actually happened that day that he returned. He gets to see that his father dearly loved him and dearly missed him and had longed to be with him for 23 years. I wonder if Joseph in those 23 years, had felt forgotten by his own father. And yet he's been told that his father never forgot him. So much so that we know in the text, his father was never the same until he saw his son again. We'll see that in the next chapter. So they're having this conversation. Judas pleading on behalf to save not only his life, well, not his life, but his brother's life and his father's life. Or your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all of my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as the servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his, his brothers. For how can I go back to my father? If the boy is not with me, I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Here we finally see the heart of Judah. Judah 
is making intercessory for his younger brother. Here is this moment that the ten brothers could escape finally from the favoritism of the two boys, Joseph and Benjamin. They could have easily said, take Benjamin, he's the thief, and gone off again and, and played it off for the rest of their lives as they had made sure that the two brothers of favoritism were long forgotten. But what do they do instead? They finally take ownership for what they've done, and we see that their heart is changed, and they say, we cannot leave without the boy. And Judah says, take me instead of him. Judah is saying to him, may I be the propitiation for that boy. May, may whatever is bound to happen to him be bound to happen to me. I will take full ownership. Whatever needs to happen because of the sin of this man for the theft that he's caused you, may it be placed on my shoulders. He does not run finally from the consequences of sin and will, is willing to take on the consequences of other people's sin. We'll see next week what happens. So that's the story, but what's the application for us? I said this throughout the message. We are like the brothers. But oh, we need someone not like Joseph. We need a Judah in our life that is willing to take on the full consequences of our sin onto themselves so that we may go what? In peace and go free. You see, that's what happens to us. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. This is how the writer John says it. He says this in the first chapter. He's talking about Jesus. I'm going to read the entire chapter all the way to verse 2 of chapter 2. It says, this is what we've heard from the beginning, what we've heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked upon and we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That's Jesus himself. The life Jesus was made manifest and we have seen it or we have seen him and we testify to it or have seen him and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That's which we have seen and heard and we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. So John is writing about having complete joy. But our joy can only come in fellowship with God the Father. Without God the Father, you will have no joy. But there, there has to be one that bridges the gap between God the Father to give us our joy. And he said, and that person we have seen, we have touched, we proclaim to you, that person is Christ Jesus. He says, this is the message that we have heard from him, Jesus, and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. What, what, what John is saying is, hey, if there's sin in your life, you cannot have fellowship with God because God is light. And where there is light, there is no darkness. And if you have darkness or sin in your life, 
you cannot have fellowship with God. We must practice the truth. But if we walk in verse, this is verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all of our sin. Now John's beginning to say, hey, you want joy? You have to walk in step with God. But in walking in step with God, you have to have this personal relationship with Jesus. Because having a personal relationship with Jesus puts you in fellowship with one another and with God through the blood of Jesus. If we say that we have no sin, we have deceived ourselves. And the truth is not in us. That's what he's saying. We can go all the way back to Genesis. This is what the brothers were trying to say. We are without sin. We're blameless. But John makes it clear here. None of us can say that we are without sin. All of us, Paul says to us, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. That's all of us that are watching online. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then he says this, if you confess your sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. John is saying, if you want to have a relationship with God, it must be through confession. Confession of our sin, the same way that Judah confessed his sin before Joseph that day, and not just his sin, but the sins of his brothers. I've got no defense. I'm guilty. God has found me out. And then John goes on to say, this is how it all happens. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, in other words, when you sin, not that you would live without sin, but when you sin, let me remind you of something that you have. But when you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. He's saying you you will sin. And you cannot advocate for yourself. You cannot justify yourself. You cannot mark yourself with righteousness. He's saying, but we have an advocate, one that pleads on our behalf, one that steps in in front of us, the same way that Judah stepped in for his brothers. He advocated for them and said, just the way Jesus says, put their guilt onto my shoulders. And I'll bear the responsibility for that. And John says this in verse 2. He said, he is the propitiation or the substitute. For our sins, and not only our sins, but also the sins of the whole world. You see, church, this morning, we have a Judah, but we have one that's greater than Judah. His name is Jesus Christ. Judah was the foreshadow of his great, 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 great grandson that was to come. That that, that this man, Jesus, would stand in our defense. And that he would say before God the judge, 
hey, whatever is supposed to be on them, your wrath that you want to pour out onto them, pour that out onto me. May I be the advocate and the propitiation for not only their sins, but the sins of the whole world so that we would not die, that we would not face eternal damnation. Christ Jesus became the greater Judah. You see, but it will start with us, church. This morning, it will start with us saying what Judah had said. I've got no defense. I've got nothing to say. The only thing that we can say this morning is I'm guilty. One theologian says it this way. The only thing that we bring to the table in our salvation is sin. Sin is what brings us to the table. It's Christ's blood that allows us to feast at the table of his righteousness. And so I would plead with you, church, this morning. Let us say, as Judas said thousands of years ago, I've got no defense. I am guilty and have mercy on me. And then hear the sweet words of Jesus when he says to us, you are forgiven. You cannot forgive yourself. You must have a forgiver. His name is Christ Jesus. The last point I want to make this morning is this. If you are a believer this morning, Paul says this in Romans 8. Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you're watching online and you're a believer this morning and you are feeling condemned, that is not from God, that is from Satan himself. May we live as children who have been forgiven because we have a great forgiver. His name is Christ Jesus, our Lord. Live as forgiven men and women, children of God this morning. Let us pray. God, all we bring to the table this morning is our sin. And I pray in my own life, I pray in the lives of those who are in this building, I pray for all the lives that are watching online. If there's anything in our life, God, that, that we've been running from from years and years and years, may it be today that we would stand up and say, I've got no more defense. I've got nothing to say. But I am guilty. And in that small phrase that packs a powerful punch, God, I pray that in that moment of confession and repentance, we hear what you've said from eternity past. You are forgiven. So may we make confession this morning of our guilt. But in making confession of our guilt, may we hear and receive the sweet words of Jesus. You are forgiven. And then, God, I pray that we would be men and women that would live forgiven. And because we live forgiven, we'd always be reminded of what we have been forgiven of, and that's our guilty, guilty sin. And then we do what First John says, God, then we would go and we would live by your commands. And by living you by your commands, not out of duty, but out of desire, God, out of a love for you, we would live transformed lives. Not of anything we've done, but everything you've done for us. 
So lead us this morning, God. Guide us this morning. I pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. For those of you who are in the building, if you'd rise for the benediction. And for you at home, if you'd bow your heads. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who is before his throne. And from Christ Jesus, the faithful witnesses. The firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Grace and peace be with you this morning. Amen.